Many times, many times I walked into this empty space. This space here within these walls. This church where we are gathered today. Too many times I have walked into it and felt its emptiness. Lockdown was longer than any of us would have liked or could have predicted when, when the corona pandemic broke out last year. And during those long months of social distancing and lockdown, I would walk into this room week after week and find it empty. Lars would show up as well, many of you know him, and it was really good to have him here. We would set up the equipment for our weekly video reflections. We would talk, would even laugh, and we would record. But even in the company of a good friend, I was constantly aware of the emptiness. All these things, all these things inside this holy space, they seemed not only empty, they seemed lonely. Missing not something, but missing someone, someone's. The empty pews that I could see behind the camera, they missed the living bodies that would sit and stand and run. The locked doors wanted themselves unlocked and swung open. The tables in the hall back there, they longed for crumbs, for coffee spills, and for laughter. But most of all, this ring, this altar ring here, this half circle around the altar, I would, I would stand within it when we were recording. Stand right here, within it, within this half circle around the table. And some days, it was like sitting at an empty table. I wouldn't set the table because there was no one to share the meal with. Because this, this half circle around the table of the altar, this is where the Lord's Supper is set when we gather as a community of faith. This is a place of holy communion. And communion calls for community. A community gathered around the table where we see each other and where we know that the meal is shared. I always liked this half circle because of that. It's not a common thing in the churches in Brazil where I come from. It's very common in Norway. Most churches have it. And I always liked it because as we gather and as we kneel, we see each other. We see each other and we know that the meal is shared. 
I always like this half circle because of that. Today, I, I want to talk about this meal. I want to talk about this table. I want to talk about this holy communion with Christ and with each other. But especially, I want to talk about how with Christ means with each other. Because if we forget that, then the meal will not be shared, it will be shattered. And I want to read with you from Paul's letter to a community where some were forgetting that, where some were pushing emptiness into what should be a full table. I want to read with you from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, from verse 17 to 29, I will read. And it says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is one of those texts in which Paul is not holding back. Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. But then again, that's not even what he's talking about per se. There are issues that Paul is addressing concerning the celebration of Holy Communion uh, that are more or one more symptom of something that was going on in a deeper level in Corinth and that Paul is dealing with in several different fronts or manifestations. If you read through the, 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 the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, you will see that throughout the letter. On the section right after this one, so right after this text that we read uh, in Paul's letter, he is dealing with the use of spiritual gifts in the context of common worship, of, of what we would call a service. And he is basically telling them to stop making a competition out of it. 
Stop doing this thing of who has the best gifts and start focusing on how their gifts, whatever they may be, can and are for the benefit of the whole community of believers. And he calls that community the body of Christ. These gifts, they are for the body of Christ. On the section right before this one that we read just now, he is dealing with rules regarding, and this sounds very weird for those of us who maybe are unfamiliar with the context, but he's dealing with rules regarding how people covered or didn't cover their heads when worshiping together, and especially when leading and prophesying, it says. And in that context, as a rule, this meant what we would call preaching the gospel, right? And that section, I think, is in particular helpful in calling our attention to a couple of very important things that I want to bring up. To begin with, we need to realize that Paul is speaking to a specific context, right? He's writing a letter to the Corinthians, and that's always important to remember when we're opening these letters in the New Testament, right? So he's writing to the believers in Corinth in the first century, right? And, and there's a couple of things that are worth remembering there. This is a mainly Gentile church. That means a mainly non-Jewish church. Uh, it has a very strong Roman cultural arena because that's what's happening in the city of Corinth. It's an important city uh, in, in, in the Roman Empire, so it has a very strong Roman cultural arena. And in this church, there were, as far as we can tell from Paul's letter to the Corinthians and other evidence, there is a mixture of people. There are affluent Gentiles, so wealthy Gentiles that had gone straight from their own religious pantheon, straight from that to faith in Christ. So these are some of the people in the, in the community. There are also God-fearing Gentiles, as they were called. So these were people who were already active in the local synagogue, the local Jewish place of worship, and they were strongly engaged with the Jewish faith from before and had come to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. So they have gone through the Jewish faith to Christ and recognized him as the Messiah. And there is also a fair number of slaves and of, of low-class citizens, we would say, who had become followers of Jesus. And all these people are part, suddenly, of the same community faith. And that's important to remember because if we don't acknowledge that Paul is speaking to a specific context, we don't understand it, and we run the risk of taking weird and sort of misplaced conclusions. Uh, to take an example, the issue with head cover, 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 coverings, for instance, right? It would make no sense if the congregation had been a mainly Jewish congregation in Jerusalem, for instance, because men covering their heads in worship was a very common practice in that context. So it wouldn't make any sense. And besides the risk of misunderstanding the context, we would also run the risk of, under, of misunderstanding the underlying issues. The issue with the church in Corinth, as we read to this, it seems to be, that people were gleaning, they were taking from both the cultures in which they were immersed and from the gospel that they had received. And they were gleaning, they were taking elements from these things 
And what was coming out was turning out to be harmful and to be dangerous. But I think it's important that we're careful here. <laughs> because it wasn't dangerous because they were getting elements from the cultures that formed the life in Corinth and appropriating them and sort of relating them to the gospel. That's not the point. It should have been doing this from day one. The problem was not that they were in some way corrupting the tradition by mixing stuff in. In fact, Paul's recommendation about the head coverings in worship, as I just said, they were in direct dialogue with the local cultural norms. And probably his advice would have been very different if this had been the original churches in Jerusalem, right? So that's not the problem. The problem is that the reasons and the way they're going about it is corrupt. The problem that Paul is calling their attention to is that their hearts were corrupt. They were acting as they were, not out of love for Christ, not out of love for the community, not out of love for the world. They were acting out of greed and out of pride. They were acting out of a desire of having something for themselves and a perception of entitlement, pride. And of course, it's always important to make it clear that when I say they, <laughs> I'm not speaking about every single Christ-believing person in Corinth in the first century. I'm talking about those that Paul was criticizing and calling to repentance here, right? He's writing a letter to actual people. Right, And this obviously does not apply to just absolutely everybody, right? But some people, in any case, seem to be acting both in the context of the church and of the town out of a desire to serve themselves rather than from the love of Christ that compels to love beyond oneself. And as Paul builds up his theological grounding in the letter before addressing this, these more practical issues, so the first 10, 11 chapters of, of, of his letter to the Corinthians, as he builds up his theological groundings, uh, he writes a lot about freedom, about freedom in Christ. And he writes a lot about how we are to live out that freedom. So it seems that some, having found that personal freedom through the gospel, that ability to move beyond the constraints that had been put on them by the cultural setting and the social expectations, having found that freedom through the gospel, they had then begun to abuse it. And the abuse was not in the exercise of the freedom itself, but in the fact that this freedom was expressing itself as self Serving. And why am I saying all of this? Well, because the most clear sign of this is that personal freedom was taking precedence over compassion and mercy. Personal freedom or perceived sense of freedom. <laughs> was taking precedence over compassion and mercy. And probably nowhere was this more sadly explicit than with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
In those days, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was often a full meal that was shared by believers. So they would sit around an actual table and eat and drink wine and eat bread. And it was a, a full meal, right? And in this context, it had become a place that was marked by division, by spite, and by oppression, rather than by grace and unity in Christ. Quite, quite concretely, some of the people would stuff themselves with bread and wine while others were hungry and thirsty. And we know the ways of the world, right? We can just imagine who was who here. Who got first serve? Who got the best cut? Who got the biggest glass full of wine? And that, that was a corruption. That was a corruption. This is my body. Paul remembers the words of Christ. This is my body, which is for you. Language is tricky, right? We hear that you, and it can mean two things in English, right? It can mean me, it can be us. But there's no question in the original Greek here. That you, it's plural. It's plural. This is my body, which is for you. And that body, because it is formed in Christ. Remember what Paul is talking about throughout the letter. Because it is formed in Christ by all of those to whom he gave himself. And that remember and recognize him as the bread of life. That body is also plural. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Those who were abusing the Lord's Supper in this way, they were not discerning the body of Christ. They were not discerning his people. They were not discerning grace and mercy and the body that is the people. And by doing that, they were not discerning the bread and wine of the Eucharist for what they really were, for what they really are. They were not discerning the freedom that leads into Christ, into his body, and therefore into unity and into mercy and compassion. How could we ever be part of the body of Christ without mercy and compassion? I guess what happens when we dig into this text and realize what Paul is talking about, that's the thing scriptures does with us all the time, right? Once we dig into this text and realize what Paul is talking about, we realize that this is about those people in Corinth, right? In that specific context, people in time and space, 
with feet on actual ground, right? But that precisely because of that, it also speaks to us. Because these are people in time and space like we are. And these underlying issues, they speak to us and they challenge us as well. To say it differently, I don't think that the Corinthians are alone in the temptation of taking freedom in Christ as freedom for myself. I don't think that the Corinthians are alone in the temptation of taking Christ to be the focus of my personal faith, and that's that. Do we recognize the risk and the temptation of gleaning whatever in our culture and in our Christian faith can serve me better and getting stuffed and drunk while others go hungry? Hungry of bread, right? Thirsty of water, cold for lack of blankets, alone for lack of presence, lost for lack of guidance. Poor for lack of sharing. I don't think they are alone either in the temptation of faking all of this as Christian piety. The Holy Communion is a church stuff, right? There's hope in these words, isn't there? Because there is another way. That's why Paul bothers writing. Right? There is another way. There is another way. The way of the Christ who broke the bread and poured the wine for his disciples and washed their feet and bled and died and resurrected. The Christ who living again continued to live in mercy and compassion and continued to break bread. To break bread to the disciples on the road to Emos. We talked about them last week, right? Meeting them in their sorrow and in their grief and revealing himself to them in the context of hospitality and of breaking bread. The Christ that continues to break bread in our lives and in our communities and through our communities to the world. And that bread-breaking life is the life we are called to live. Not just the ones who eat the bread, the ones who break it and share it. This is, in that sense, to be a bread-breaking community. A community where Christ's grace and compassion present on the Holy Communion is also present, is also the presence of the Spirit at church coffee and at Tuesday lunch, wherever that lunch might be for you. And the privilege 
and the prophetic privilege of sharing this meal as we will do today, of sharing it by kneeling around this altar, is that we see each other. We see each other. We receive the body and the blood of Christ, and we see the body of Christ. We see each other, and we know that the meal is always shared. Grace is always shared. Christ is shared. Within our community and beyond it. As I said, when I, in Brazil where I come from, this half circle, this one is squarish, but still, this half circle is not a common feature in churches. It was a new thing for me when I came to Norway. And I was curious about it. Yeah. And at first I thought just about what I shared with you, that we, we come here, we kneel, and we see each other, right? We're around the table. We're close enough, you know? But then there's something else. It's a half circle. Why is it a half circle? Because we need to be reminded that the community goes beyond us. The circle continues beyond us. It continues into eternity, but it also continues into all those communities of faith gathered around the table. It continues back in history and forward in history. And for those of us in OIC that have what I consider an immense privilege and joy of kneeling around this half circle and seeing our faces, and our faces are so different. They look so different. They're so obviously different. Right? And then we look at this other end, right? The meal we share needs to extend to all these places, to all these stories, to all these pains and all these longings, to all these hungers and all these thirsts that we bring in our bodies, that we represent in the color of our skins, And where Christ meets us. The resurrected and risen Jesus Christ has now given us of his holy body and blood that give us forgiveness and sets us free. He gives us strength to live and strength to believe. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. In days of darkness and in days of light, may he give you his peace. Go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord and the world joyfully.